This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt shawley bringing the best of my times radio show don't forget you can listen for free live on your dab your smart speaker and on the times radio app Coming up on today's episode, our big thing today is a chat with Wes Streeting at Labour's Shadow Health Secretary. We talk the NHS, gay marriage and play Mallets Mallets, because why not? Uh, before that, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to India Knight. Morning, India. Morning, Matt. Morning, James. And James is here in the studio. I've just noticed you've got a light spot on your shirt. It's not a it's not a plain black shirt. It's a faint. It's nice. It's freckled little spots. Freckled, yeah, freckled yeah. little spots. I'm glad that it's actually my favourite shirt. Is it? Yeah. So I'm pleased that you liked it. Is that why you've chosen uh, to have one too many buttons undone? Again. <laughs> <laughs> this is normal. I have a normal number of buttons. No one ever. Okay, fine. Um, uh, we'll come. We'll come to etiquette and fashion uh, issues uh, in a moment. But India, you wanted to talk about. Um, the Nicola Bully case, uh, of course, went missing while she was out walking a dog. But more, more the 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 media and social media reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly. I can't stop thinking about it. It's obviously a deeply distressing case, and the idea of a woman disappearing in thin air of a morning after her dro- dropping her kids off at school it's just very hard to get one's head around, and you know her poor family. But but what's amazing to me is well there are two things that first there's the social media aspect i don't understand why the crime scene was never secured and so you have people amateur sleuths tramping around everywhere making wild dispersions sharing their theories and then um today's mirror uh reports that the police had to move people on because they'd broken they traveled from liverpool in a group to break into an abandoned house um, nearby. I mean, the, 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 of course, it's a baffling story and everybody wants uh, this woman to be found. But, but the idea that you would, you know, get in your car and go and potter around and, you know, film yourself for TikTok pointing at the bench that her phone was left on or, you know, walk up and down by the bit of river where she was last seen, I find really extraordinary. And I blame um, true crime podcasts for this, for the idea that anybody <laughs> can really you know, do better than sleuth. the cops. Yeah. I mean, one of my favourite TV shows is um, uh, 
uh, Only Murders in the Building, which is Steve Martin and mm. Martin Short uh, being amateur sleuths making their own true crime podcast. But you're right, in, in the real world, it's some, there's something deeply peculiar about it, James. Yeah, I completely agree. One of my jobs is reviewing podcasts, and I've never, ever, ever got the true crime thing, which just seems to me... I always worry that I come across all sort of pious and holier than thou when I say this, but some of these kind of podcasts where every murder is kind of like an entertainment event and everyone can kind of fascinatedly probe over someone's last minute and, you know, everyone's talking about all this kind of stuff about how attractive serial killers are and uh, the whole thing just strikes me as, like, totally distasteful and... I don't know. Maybe that sounds pompous, but I completely agree with. Um, I completely agree with India, and it's it's come up before this whole thing of you know every time there's a murder, there are a load of now true crime podcast obsessives who believe that they are now detectives and yeah. disrupt disrupt you know situations for the police. I mean, um, there's a murder in Australia. I can't remember that the same thing happened, and it's just stay out of it. You're not a detective. And I suppose that... but it's compounded by the fact that there have been two cases. Um, uh, the original series of Serial. Um, and I think actually an Australian one more recently that have resulted in convictions being overturned. So, you know, the fact that the police or the courts do occasionally get it wrong just kind of adds to the general confusion and gives people the idea that actually they might solve it. Why wouldn't they? Other people have in the past. It's really, I mean, you can, it, it must add so terribly to the distress of Nicola Bully's family, it's really, really strange. I wish people wouldn't. And I suppose it is one of these things which is massively amplified by social media. I remember absolutely years ago watching Crime Watch when they covered the shooting of Jill Dando. And most of the programme was Nick Ross asking people to stop sending in theories because all they really wanted was witnesses who'd been in the street at the time or might actually have something useful. But even back then, what was that, maybe 20 years ago? Maybe even longer ago than that. They were being bombarded by people saying, I'll tell you what what I I think happened. Um, And now everyone can do that constantly on every platform, round the clock. Um, And and you're right. And then they turn up. It's the turning up there. It's just so weird, isn't it? It's the getting in your car and driving and turning up and going, good, right, let's get cracking. It's so strange. Very peculiar. I'm sure there's some sort of um, psychological study which can be done into it. Because none of it is helping, ultimately. Um, and even, you know, the, the the dive expert who offered himself up and the police have let him in and he's done his thing and now he said he doesn't know what but to that's do. That's really strange as well. He's gone off now. But that's really weird. I mean, he was allowed to step into a police inquiry, which is quite strange. And and then for a few days, he became the voice of the inquiry. You know, the, the woman, uh, Superintendent Sally Riley of Lancashire Police, who's been giving the press conferences, was completely sort of pushed aside. And this man, Peter, I can't remember his surname, was all over the front pages. Folding, all over, yeah, all Peter over, Folding, yeah. Peter Folding, um, as if it was his own inquiry and his pronouncements were sort of seized upon as if everything the police had... I mean, maybe the police are rubbish, I don't know, but as if everything the police had been doing was sort of worthless and he'd come to save the day, except... And now he's saying very categorically that she's not in the water and the police seem to think she is still in the water. And the other thing is um, that he didn't have any particular information he knew as much as the public knew he knew as much as had been stated in the press conferences so so the police hadn't shared whatever information they may have with him and so why was he allowed to talk so authoritatively about a situation 
about which he didn't have all the all the facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because often, often in, in these things, that the police might not always put everything in mm. into the public domain. Well, it's I mean, it's a it's an interesting angle on what is I mean, clearly just a dreadful incident. Um, but it can't be it can't be helping a poor family. This. TikTokers turning up. Yeah, with their, with it's their... that kind of social media narcissism as well. I think where everyone thinks, "Oh, this is all about me." Yeah, you know, I'm the center of attention. I must be the person who has the you know insight or whatever to go and discover the truth about. And it's actually no, this isn't. The, it's only social media provides this illusion. That it's all about you. It's actually yeah. not at all. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> right. Let's move on, James, and let's make it all about you. Uh, we're going to talk about your. Column. Well, that's of course entirely entirely correct. Etiquette has <laughs> taken a turn for the woke. Uh, so it's the it's New York. Is it New York Magazine? Yeah, it's really, really, it's a brilliant list, actually, it's worth Googling. New York Magazine has produced a list of 150 rules of 21st century etiquette, which is, a lot of it's quite annoying and smug. This is the point of these lists, and it's sort of, um, you know, it's kind of made to wind people up. It's a really good idea. A lot of it is interesting. It's gone sort of mega, 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 mega viral. Everybody I know is talking about it um, because it's because it's a good and like interesting, relevant list. And I was trying to draw a theme out of this, which is things, you know, new social sensitivities that we once didn't have, but now do have, um, which would be probably to do with, you know, sensitivity around how to talk about race, how to talk about gender. There's a lot on the list about, you know, what should you do if you if you misgender someone? Uh, what should you do if you see someone misgendering someone? Should you intervene or not? Um, and I was kind of I was sort of speculating that there's a sort of um, political correctness has now turned. It's often kind of talked of as you know, is it just politeness? It has now turned into its own kind of system of etiquette, which in a way is you know just as elaborate as anything that we had in the 1950s when we worried about like. When the vicar's coming for tea, what kind of fish knife should he? I don't know all this, all this stuff. I never got, I know, never had to get my head around it. Do you um, stir your tea with a fish knife? That's where you're going wrong. Oh God, yeah. Oh no, that's a, that's a social disaster in the no, making. No, that's don't, why don't, the vicar's never coming to tea again. Stir with a knife, stir up strife, is my gran always says. You're all over this stuff. Yeah. Well, I should have consulted you before I wrote this column. But the thing that, and I do, I genuinely hadn't come across this before. You talk about this, um, this phenomenon, particularly in academia where before any meeting can begin, everyone you don't just introduce yourself or even just give your pronouns, but you have to describe what you look like physically. Yeah, this is something I've come across from friends, yeah, friends who work in universities. It's an American thing, basically, and you get it in corporate America too, but it's amazing you can watch these videos of people, you know, starting conferences or having meetings, and you start off and you say, I am a white man wearing square glasses, wearing a blue shirt with little white dots on, and I'm wearing black jeans. And then the next person goes, you know, my name is Matt Chorley, I'm, you know... But, as, but, as beautifully dressed as I always am. And it's sort of, apparently it's in deference to people who may be partially sighted, but it just kind of strikes me this extraordinary social ritual that is in the process of developing that is, you know, replacing those kind of old doffing your hat or whatever you did to introduce yourself back in the, you know, back in the 18th century. Um, what did you think of this? I mean, um, uh, India, because part of me was thinking, should I start the show every day by describing what I'm wearing? Well, you're, a, you're, when you're wearing radio, your beautiful jacket, you should do radio. Radio is a reasonable medium to describe what you're wearing if you felt so inclined. But I don't understand, James. If somebody, obviously, you would do that if somebody was blind or partially sighted. Are we assuming that there are people in the room who are secretly blind or partially sighted and haven't told you? Because otherwise, why would you do it? If everybody can see what you're wearing, also, why do they care about what you look like? <laughs> From the people I've spoken to, the idea but maybe seems... maybe they're partially sighted and mute. Yes, and they can't even tell people they're partially sighted. Yeah, that may be it. Um... <laughs> The people, the, the idea seems. To, I think it's about like normalizing, you know, 
the you know normalizing this courtesy towards people who may be partially sighted. Is there any sense? And I genuinely don't know. There's a genuine question. If someone's listening, then uh, do let us know. Is there any sense that partially sighted people want every meeting to be taken up by this? And you're doing this regardless of whether or not you, there was anyone. But that's why I don't understand. Yeah. Well, as the point, the point, as I was saying in my, in my yeah. column, I think a lot of this is about not about you know being necessarily deferential to people um, who have these you know who are partially sighted. It's about showing I'm the person who. Is I'm with thinking it, about and I thinking about it, and I'm a good person, and I know the rules, and I have you know I'm the kind of with it person who understands this is the done thing nowadays, which is what manners have always been about. It's yeah. always been about showing off that you're the person who knows the rules. <laughs> I still don't really understand. Uh, I mean, meetings yes, meetings go on long enough already, there? India. Without um, and do you have to do it for every meeting? Um, like, so if we have a team meeting on the show, because I know what they all look like. Do we still have to do it? Well, I think the you should. Yeah, I'm horrified to hear that you haven't been. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. Go on far too long already, <laughs> without without me having to explain to producer Andrew what I look like. But if you're nervous and you haven't really prepared for the meeting, maybe it's a good way to spin out time and just elaborately describe what you're wearing, so everyone hopes you shut up, and then you don't have to say anything that might, you know, reveal that you haven't prepared properly. That would be my. Is there anything on this approach. list which you thought was good? Um, trying to think, what was? Yes, there was some good stuff. The. Uh, um, Stuff about if there are people taking photographs on the pavement, always just walk through them. It's not your job yes, to I be agree. deferential. And I thought that was very good. Yeah, I agree. Um, never uh, wake your partner up in the middle of the night for any, you know, literally short of being murdered for any reason at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> the photos thing. Um, India, I've been in so many uh, people's photos on Westminster Bridge. When I used to go to Parliament every day, I'd walk from Waterloo across to Parliament. And just there's absolutely no way I'm stopping. I can't be stopping for everyone taking their no, photos. Well, you'd never ever get anywhere when you get, in, in London. When you, in get other home, cities too. when you get home and look for your pictures, like who's that fat faced man walking across? <laughs> Hello, I'm a fat faced man walking across Westminster <laughs> Bridge. Uh, I mean, you're, in case you're taking a partially fo- sighted photo of your big bed. The danger zones are anywhere where the you might be able to see a sunset, um, and people crowd along yeah, with their yeah, cameras. Yeah. That's always dangerous. Oh, the other the other good one, which I actually think was true, was maybe a little bit controversial, was um, rules about sending emails or texts late at night are obsolete, and you should just email whenever you want, and it's up to the people who are receiving the emails to have their phones set, not you know to re- not to receive notifications, and it's you email when you want, and other people pick up when they want, and you shouldn't. I, and also, email I think I think there's a difference between to. emailing te- texting's quite aggressive, a little bit more aggressive. Whereas yeah. an email, so I'm just putting this in your inbox for you to uh, look at when you're looking when at you your can, inbox. Yeah, when you get to work yeah. and you look at it all. And I thought that was um, maybe a little a little bit controversial, but I thought a good a good point. Right, let's turn our attention to uh, <laughs> Lee Anderson, the uh, new Conservative Deputy uh, Party Chairman. Uh, he has given an interview to the spectators, James Hill, who can talk us through some of the choice uh, bits. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. So, um, are you going to describe uh, how you look for us just before we begin? Yeah, no, sure thing. So, we interviewed um, uh, Lee Anderson last Wednesday, a few hours after our last edition went to press. And then 24 hours before this week's edition, he got promoted. Uh, so, to Deputy, Chairman, Deputy Party Chairman. And actually, funnily enough, in that interview, I asked him, you know, I said, are you going to be as a vacancy for past chairman? Could you get that? He said, no, 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 no chance. But I said, deputy, he said, well, maybe we'll see. And obviously, <laughs> uh, less than a week later, he was promoted. Amazing. And I, I wanted to interview him for two reasons, really. One of which was a lot of MPs talking to me and saying he's very popular. He's done a dozen constituency engagements across the country in a year. Uh, and second of all, he's talking about cost of living. He's one of a handful of MPs who feel perhaps they can talk about this and actually say, hang on a sec, personal budgeting is a reason here. Um, so I wanted to sort of talk to him for those two reasons. And then, of course, we... 
got onto a whole range of other areas, including uh, capital punishment. So I asked him about, you know, should we bring back the death penalty? And he, he agreed and said that, uh, you know, it's the only thing with a 100% success rate and uh, nobody's ever committed a crime after being executed. Uh, and then he sort of slightly caveats that by talking about the Lee Rigby killers and uh, how you need a sort of burden of proof. But yeah, it's just caused quite the storm on um, day one or two of uh, the Anderson's role in the job. What do you think of this, uh, India? He says, he goes back to his constituency and everyone says, oh, finally, you're saying what I'm thinking. Yes, people like him always claim that um, the, the constituents have that sort of response and maybe some of them do, that's fine. You know, the absurd line about um, nobody reoffends if they're dead. I mean, you can extend it. You know, nobody steals from shops again if you chop off their hands. I mean, it's, it's so um, distasteful and grotesque that I can't. It, it, he makes me really cross, actually. I don't think it was a very sensible appointment. I'm sure there are people who agree with him and um, I'm not very interested in what they have to say. James? I think uh, it's a kind of uh, interesting and slightly depressing trend of, I, I think, again, talking about social media, that people begin to learn that they can get a lot of attention by just saying stupid, controversial things. And I think it becomes a little bit addictive. And I think it's probably bad for our political discourse that people get addicted to attention. And obviously, if you say stupid stuff, you can find thousands of people who'll agree with you. Um, and I think, yeah, it's a bit depressing from the point of view of, uh, you know, people having a sensible debate. Indian Night and James Marrick then. Of course, you can read them in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next is Wes Treaty. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. And I'm delighted to be joined live in the studio today by Wes Streeting, Labour's Shadow Health Secretary. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Lovely to see you. It's an enormous coffee you've got. You know, Matt, it's not even coffee. It is a, it is a, it's hot chocolate. I've had such a horrible journey <laughs> in today. There are times when only a venti hot chocolate with whipped cream will do. And that's now, one of should, those the, days. should the Shadow Health Secretary be going around drinking buckets of hot chocolate? No, um, <laughs> but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> And look, this this underlines what I've said a number of times now, which yeah. is the Labour Party is not interested in being the fun, fun police. Everything in moderate, well, not quite everything in moderation, let's not go too far. But um, nice things in moderation is fine. Do you, because you're Shadow Health Secretary, do you have to 
Do you think more about being healthy than you did when you were shadow schools minister or whatever? No. Um, <laughs> but no, I'll tell you what I do feel. Uh, actually, the thing that did change my kind of outlook on health, my own health, yeah. was um, when I went through kidney cancer um, year before last. And after that, actually, I started taking it much more seriously. So um, walked into a gym for the first time in my life. And um, is, it, is it miserable as it looks? I keep thinking I should go to a gym. No, I quite enjoy it. And I, yeah. I always feel a bit miserable um, if I go too long without going to the gym now. Um, so I find it's been good for my mind and sort of good for my waistline. Um, and I think particularly in Westminster, as you know, it is so full on and you're always on the go. The temptation just to grab the thing in front of yeah. you, whatever the sort of the red label um, or calorie uh, description is, is, is a problem, which is why people often joke about the MP stone. When you become an MP, you put, put a stone, a stone on. Yeah. Just because you're always around a free buffet. No, no, we're not always around free buffets. No, um, no, we're working very hard, and um, no, you just tend to like grab stuff on the grab, go, yeah, and as yeah. a result, it's not always the healthiest stuff. And just you, you mentioned your cancer diagnosis. Have you now got the all clear? Because the last time I heard you talking about this, you said you were waiting, but it's still seven million people. I'm it was always like all waiting. held up in the um, NHS. No, so I've got. So basically, I have to go for annual follow up scans now. But but so far, I've had two six month follow up scans, albeit um, more like eight and nine month follow up scans because of the backlog. Um, and yeah, they've been clear. So I'm Good. feeling very lucky, to be honest. Good. Um, and maybe a bit complacent with looking like a <laughs> barrel of my enormous cup of hot chocolate. Well, but it'll be cold by the time we finish this, so it'll be even uh, more disgusting. Oh, well, let's let's turn our attention then to your to your day job as, as Shadow Health Secretary. Clearly, the biggest thing uh, facing the NHS right now. Uh, as well as those backlogs, is the strikes. Um, how long do you think the strikes in the NHS could go on for? I think what worries me is that there isn't, at the moment, a- an end in sight. I don't think the government has an exit strategy, which is really worrying because every day we have industrial action, it's cancelled operations, more delays for patients... And also for the staff themselves that are on strike, they lose a day's pay. And a lot of these people, particularly thinking about um, the nurses, paramedics, one of the reasons they're on strike is because they are really suffering in the cost of living crisis. So these are people who can't really afford to lose a day's pay. Maybe the government hopes that by dragging this out, they're going to exhaust the workforce and they're they're going to fold. I've got to say that's not my reading. Having spoken to staff who've been out on the picket lines, they are more angry now than they were when they balloted for strike action originally and voted for strike action. I think the government's reaction and their, 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 their not just the tone but the approach they've taken of not being willing to even sit down and negotiate on pay has added insult to injury. And I think the risk for the NHS isn't that staff walk out for another day as they walk out altogether. Retention is a massive yeah. challenge in the NHS. One thing I would say, a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, um, in Wales, um, the Welsh Labour government seems to have got uh, an agreement with almost all of the unions. Members still have to vote on that agreement, but I think that could potentially provide a route map for the Conservatives in Westminster to follow. And if they did that, I think that would be a good thing because I think we want to see an end to the strike action. We've but got do, you su- do you support the striking? Because the Labour Party, born out of the trade union movement, you were head of the NUS as well. You know, you've literally run a union. Do you support them going on strike over pay? I understand it. 
I mean, we're never going to be in a position, you know, if I was the health secretary, I'd never be in a position of encouraging staff to go on strike. I'd very much hope that the approach I would take would mean staff wouldn't feel the need to go on strike. But I've always understood why in this particular dispute, nurses have walked out and uh, and not just the nurses, the paramedics and other NHS staff too. But the mere fact, I think what shocked me really more than anything else, when the Royal College of Nursing balloted for strike action. That was the first time in the history of their Royal College that they've ever balloted for strike action. I would have thought that would have been the wake-up call that the government needed to say, whoa, hang on a minute, even what, RCN's going on strike? Let's get them in. Let's see this off before it starts. That And, you know, Pat Cullen, who I think... Um, Who's the head has, of the RCN? Yeah, she, I, I think she has conducted herself and led the Royal College in a really professional and constructive manner throughout. I, I think she has given the government so many opportunities. Do you think it's partly because of last summer we basically didn't know from one minute to the next who was going to be the health secretary? Is it all bound up? I think it's some of that. But, I mean, you know, chaos. we've had four health secretaries during my time as a shadow health secretary. Two of them have been called Steve Barclay. So the one over <laughs> the summer is the one now. So you'd have thought, come on, Steve, you've had two goes at getting this yeah. right. Um, and so do you think that in terms of sort of moving forward and finding a route map out of it, do... Should the union stop talking about this financial year and focus on getting a better deal next year? Because we're almost, I mean, we're into February now. Um, well, I think it's almost the other way around. I think because the government hasn't sorted out this year, it's storing up even bigger problems for next year. And I think the government's got to do two things. One is sit down and do serious negotiations on pay for this year. And secondly, um, hammer out an agreement on how the pay review body process is going to work to build confidence in it for next year. Because I do think it's important that we have an independent pay review body process. But I also understand why um, the health unions have lost confidence is in it, the process. Is it OK if you were, if you become health secretary and you're going through this process, are there any circumstances in which you would ignore what the independent pay review body suggested as a point of principle? Or would you always accept what they said? I don't want to create hostages to fortune. I mean, you can see circumstances playing out right now in which a Secretary of State might say, actually, thanks very much, pay review body process. I've considered what you've said, but for this reason, I'm not going to adopt this particular recommendation. I think in this case, there are other factors in pl at play, not least it's been a long time since the pay review body process uh, made a recommendation and inflation has just ballooned since in the most extraordinary way. Um, so there are, I, I don't think I could rule out under any circumstances, but in an ideal world, what you want to do is be in a position where the mandate that you give to the pay review body as the Secretary of State leads to a recommendation that you can just adopt. Because, you know, again, and this is why I think it can be a double-edged sword for the unions in a way, you, you, you've got to, we've got to be a bit careful about not always, you know, suggesting that the Secretary of State should be bound because there might be times when you don't want them to be bound as well. And similarly, there might also be times where, you know, especially when the public finances and the mess they're in, where people might say, actually, we can't do as much as the pay review body says. So it's, it, I'm not pretending any of this is easy. Well, I was, yeah. And I've tried to, um, you know, for, in the middle of the dispute, from the perspective of the opposition, to be as constructive as possible and not try and um, bounce either the unions or the Secretary of State into a particular figure on pay, for example. But I do think the government have handled this extraordinarily badly. But isn't the truth that actually Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, has told all of you in the Shadow Cabinet, don't say anything which commits to ever 
uh, siding up to what unions say because in, what, two years' time, you could be sitting around the cabinet table having exactly the same, you know, inflation could still be high. A lot of these disputes, uh, are people say, well, over the last 10, 15 years, our pay's been eroded. We want all that to catch up as well. And the truth is, you need to say, tell, tell the unions, the NHS, the country, can't afford double-digit inflation-matching pay rises. That's the truth, isn't it? But you can't, you don't want to say that because it'll upset the unions. Well, I did say that right at the outset. I did say, again, because we're just conscious of the fact that, especially with the polls being where they are, um, and us not being complacent, by the way. Um, and if you had a pound for every time Keir Starmer said, no complacency. Have you been looking at my joke book? <laughs> there are two versions of this. One I nicked from Andrew Gwynn, yeah. which is, um, if I had a pound for every time Keir Starmer said, no room for complacency, I could pay Nadim Zahawi's tax Yeah, very bill. good. And then the other one I've been using until Nadim Zahawi's um, absurd situation was, um, if I had a pound for every time... Uh, Kiz says no room for complacency. I could join Rishi Sunak on the Sunday Times Rich List. Perfect. Perfect joke for Times Radio. Yeah. But um, <laughs> no, going back to your central point, though, about, you know, I did say right at the beginning of this dispute, when RCN said 19.5%, I just thought, hang on, look, I've got to be just honest here. If I were the Secretary of State for Health today, I would not have 19.5% on the table and wouldn't be able to agree to it. And RCN have since, I think, acknowledged that they've had to bring their demand down. So... Uh, but I thought it was important to signal that at the beginning, not because Labour doesn't believe that nurses deserve it, but because we want to reassure people that we're not going to make promises we can't keep, that we're going to be careful with people's money, that the Conservatives have left the public finances in a mess. And when we say we're not going to do everything we would want to do as quickly as we might want to do it, we really mean it. Um, because I still think that um, we've got to keep reassuring the public, particularly those um, many, many probably millions now of Conservative voters who are deeply disaffected and probably quite disgusted with the behaviour of the Conservative Party. We want to reassure people that Labour is a serious, credible um, alternative government or a government in waiting, as Steve Reid might <laughs> Steve say. Steve Reid uh, seems to repeat quite a lot. Um, we've talked a lot about nurses, and part of the reason we talk a lot about nurses is because everybody likes nurses and they're, they're treated as a special case. But do you have the same sympathy for the BMA and for doctors um, and, and, you know, the criticism is the BMA's got increasingly left-wing and, and militant, and doctors are well-paid compared to lots of other people in the country. Do you have the same same sympathy with the BMA? Well, well doctors are well-paid, but junior doctors are struggling. I, 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 you know, as you, as you know, I've had some run-ins with the BMA over some of the things Labour's said about standards um, and waiting times, particularly in general practice. But, you know, I, I really... I, I can't help but be really quite moved by the conversations I've had with junior doctors on the visits um, I've been doing around the country. I mean, Keir and I spoke to a group of junior doctors when we were up in Stevenage. And for a group of people who are, are towards the beginning of their career, what should be a really extraordinary, rewarding career, doing something really quite remarkable that they have already spent years and years and years training for, working hard for... I found it a bit soul-destroying listening to those students, junior doctors, describing what they're going through now and, and how they're feeling about their future career. I just thought people who are embarking on a career in medicine shouldn't feel this burned out. They shouldn't be struggling this much with their bills and they shouldn't be feeling so um, 
pessimistic about what the future of the health service might look like and questioning whether or not they might stay in it for their career. We spend a lot of money training doctors. We can't afford to lose them. And so I do think we've got, you know, it's why I really don't want to see the junior doctors in a position where they feel forced out on strike. And what I've been saying to the government is, look, you've got to understand the public finance in the mess. You might want to take a bit of responsibility for that uh, Conservative Party. But... um, I also think the government's got to see this in the context of retention as well and think about the cost of losing staff from the NHS faster than we can recruit them. Um, uh, I want to talk about um, gay marriage because you, were t- you took part in the... There was a debate in the, the Commons the other day and you you were talking about how you found it hard being a gay Anglican, trying to weigh up those two aspects of your life to the point that you've now stopped going to church. Is that right? Well, I've, I've, I've sort of started again. I always describe myself as a practising Christian on the basis that I'm practising and still not very good at it. <laughs> um, but it's, this, this goes back to when I was a, a teenager, really. And um, I went to a Church of England primary school. Uh, I, I, I chose to be baptised and confirmed. Um, and, you know, my faith was and remains very important to me. And it was the single biggest thing that made it hard for me to accept myself and to come out as gay. And I think the church underestimates the harm that it does. Um, and and I've, it took me a long time to really reconcile my sort of theological view on this as well. Um, I have come to the sort of view that being gay and being Christian are um, compatible um, and I would love to see the Church of England adopt equal marriage. Um, they've fallen short of that position. The General Synod, I think, as we speak, is having, uh, which, which is the, effectively the Parliament of the of the Church of England, um, it's, it gets its authority delegated from our, our actual Parliament, and uh, they are debating, as we speak, um, a proposal to sort of bless um, uh, people who are in a same-sex um, partnership. But stopping short of actually having a marriage. Yeah, and I, th- I think as well the, the, the fudge is so elegant that they've stopped short of actually blessing the relationship. They bless these two individuals who happen to be... Happen. And, and let the, the prayer itself is beautiful. Um, you know, I plan to use it if that's what the church commits to today. Um, but uh, I think that uh, I think the, the church has still fallen short of where I would hope they would be. It was interesting, the Archbishop of Canterbury yesterday, uh, speaking to the Synod, said, I ask each member of the Synod to vote with their spirit-inspired consciences, scripturally and spiritually guided, and not because groups or lobbies or outsiders have told you to. I've heard them over the last uh, two weeks in Parliament, talking about the debate you took part in, and being told exactly what to do. I'm not doing any of it. And sort of basically telling MPs to sort of butt out. <laughs> What's your response to that? Well, firstly, I I have a lot of love and respect for the Archbishop of Canterbury. I think he is a wonderful man. Um, I I also respect that you know for for him and for the General Synod, this should be about um, what's right according to to our faith and Christian convictions, um, and not about um, whether or not what we believe is kind of in vogue with wider society. And I also think he's entirely... um, uh, He's entirely uh, allowed and and entitled to say, 
I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is the General Synod. We decide church policy. Thanks for your input, Parliament and everyone else. But we we don't bend to you. We 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 you know we we bow to God. I think that's a legitimate position for him to take. Um, but I, I think that uh, you know I, I've come to a kind of theological view and a Christian view that you know I am made and other gay people are made in God's image, and that marriage. Um, and committed relationships is something that we should aspire for people to have in same-sex relationships. So that's my view. Um, other people in the church have a different view, uh, and that's that's they're perfectly entitled to that. And I think the Archbishop of Canterbury is in a difficult position because on one hand... He is responsible for the Church of England, but he's also responsible for the global Anglican communion. And he wants to hold it together. And I think that is a reasonable position for someone in, you know, in his shoes to, to, to take. Because I don't other pretend countries are different easy. places in terms of... Yeah, very much yeah, so. Yeah. And it's very difficult. And there is a genuine risk the church yeah. will split. There are some people in the Church of England who um, say, well, look, this is just inevitable. Allow the, the schism to happen. Um, but, I suppose but, the, but he's in a difficult position. The counter-risk is that people like you stop going to church and that other people, straight people as well, think, well, this isn't for me, you know, this is so far, other major institutions have had to move with the times. Yeah, that is that is a risk. Um, and I do think that um, it's... It, one of the things that always makes me sad is um, whenever I've talked about being a Christian, the reaction I get on social media... Um, is a lot more hostile than I ever expected. It took me by surprise, actually. From what direction? Um, you know, for every, I think a lot of, not just cynicism about religion, but fear. And I think it, the problem we have is that often when people think about people in politics of faith, they don't think you know, about the way in which my faith might motivate my desire to tackle burning injustices of poverty and inequality and other things that you know, where my faith strongly influences my politics, they think that because I'm a Christian, you know, will I then oppose a woman's right to choose? Will I then be socially conservative on other equalities issues? And, and actually, the answer to both of those questions is, no, actually, I'm very socially liberal and actually very secular in how yeah. I cast my vote in Parliament anyway. I don't believe in imposing our own, our own religious views on others. Um, so, uh, but it, it, it saddens me that often... Yeah. particularly in the LGBT plus community, when people um, hear religion or faith, their, f their first thought is bigotry and prejudice. Yeah. And I think that's desperately sad. And that's my message to conservatives with a small c in the Anglican church and actually in other faiths as well, is I, I think, you know, I, I, I can certainly speak more for um, the Abrahamic faiths because they're the ones that I know best. But I think what's at the heart of our... Um, of our religion is actually about love it's about acceptance it's about not judging others god judges we don't where we should we should be motivated by compassion and reaching out to others yeah. and i think too often we what we get is the sort of fire and brimstone of the old testament and not the love and compassion of the new testament well, it's a fascinating debate. And like you said, we will keep across what's, uh, what's happening. At I've the, totally at the broken synopsis. Alistair Campbell's miss missive of like, don't do God on this one. <laughs> I didn't expect to come but and living sermons on but a it's Thursday morning. But it's interesting. It's interesting. And it's, you know, and it's, it's something that, that lots of politicians don't talk about. Well, because we've only got a couple of minutes left. What we thought we'd do is, is, is finish off with a game. Because the other day, 
I, I saw you outside the window of the studio. You well, were... I came down looking for Timmy Mallet, who's one of my childhood heroes. And yeah. I came down, he wasn't here. He wasn't here. But he came on the show to do If I Ruled the World and told me who he'd have in his cabinet. Well, well I'm going to start with one of my heroes from the 12th century, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And I love the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. I'll have a couple of, um, uh, of newies, too, of current people. I'll have uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Yeah, yeah, no, this is, this is a great cabinet. I'm going to have um, David Hockney. And I'm going to call on my good pal, uh, Professor Brian Cox. Brian is a, is a, is a mate of mine who uh, I gave a job to when he was 17. He came along and did some jingles for me uh, on my Piccadilly Radio uh, evening pop show. So... Uh, when I messaged you yesterday, West Streeting, and said, uh, what should we do on the show? You said you wanted to play Mallet's Mallet. Mallet's oh, Mallet, of course, is a word association game. Well, you mustn't pause or hesitate. Repeat a word or say a word I don't like. Otherwise, of course, you get a bash in the head like this. <coughs> or like this. <coughs> and it's the one with the most bruises who loses. Now, I don't have a Mallet, and you are playing on your own. But what we thought we'd do is we'd do a word association game. Just to oh, get your God. Views what have I let myself in for? We're supposed to start by saying blur, by the way. Yeah, look at the camera and say blur. Blur. Look at that, look at that camera and say blur. Blur. There we are. Very good. Uh, right, so I'm going to give you a word, and you just tell me the, f- the first thing that pops into your head. Right. Right, you ready? dangerous, yeah. Okay, Eurovision. Fun. <laughs> Very good. Electric cars. Green. <laughs> Madonna. Spectacular. <laughs> Uh, Forty Towers. Comedy. <laughs> GP's receptionist. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> you know better than My going. stepmum's a GP's oh, receptionist. Oh, is she? Yes, oh, I, you, no, I, no, no alternative there. Uh, Lee Anderson. Oh, good grief. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Lee Anderson. Should we bring back hanging? Apparently it's what normal people are thinking about. You, you used to work for the Labour Party until fairly recently. Lee Anderson is a great example of what is wrong with the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak's weakness. I don't think for a minute that Rishi Sunak believes in the nonsense that comes out of Lee Anderson's mouth, but he has promoted him. Just as he promoted Suella Braverman, just as he promoted Dominic Raab, I think, we, I think it is an appalling position to be in where the Prime Minister of our country appoints people to high office that he knows are not up to the job because he's too weak to stand up for his own party. It is a total disgrace, and I just want to reassure decent depressed Conservatives out there, there is, there, there is a safe home in a serious political party led by Keir Starmer. Um, it's not very whack a day, but we take your point. <laughs> <laughs> More <laughs> than one word. Here's another one, then. Rishi Sunak. Weak. <laughs> Tony Blair. Winner. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn. Out. <laughs> Never to come back? No. <laughs> Do you think it's an issue? It keeps being brought up at PMQs. You didn't serve for Jeremy Corbyn. You were very rude about Jeremy Corbyn. You stuck by your principles. Keir Starmer didn't. I wouldn't say Keir didn't stick by his principles. I always found Keir to be someone that, particularly on anti-Semitism, which I was most exercised about, but also on other issues, uh, he was someone I could go to and know he was on the right side, making the right arguments and trying his best to change things from within. I don't criticise him at all for that. I, I think we can see, I mean, contrast with what I've just said about Rishi Sunak, um... Uh, withdrawing the whip from a former leader of a political party is a huge um, deal and I think an act of enormous strength and integrity and the changes that Keir has led within the party on anti-Semitism have led up, I think, led up to 
all of the hopes and expectations of those of us who were desperate to see um, some light at the end of the tunnel. I suppose Rishi Sunak has thought about taking the, the whip off his immediate predecessor as, as Tory leader. Oh, well, you, I mean, yes, <laughs> yesterday in Parliament, by the way, um, God, God, um, and Boris was there in Westminster Hall. Yeah. My goodness, the stories I've heard about the running commentary and what Boris was saying about was Rishi saying? Sunak during... Well, just... just um, a constant barrage of criticism and I think he's I mean to be fair to Boris he's not been quiet about it I think he's since tweeted basically saying you know give give Ukraine the aircraft and um and and on uh, uh, home affairs questions on um earlier this week Boris was bobbing to come in on topical questions surrounded by supporters biggest cheer of the afternoon when he stood up uh, that is not a former prime minister who's gone away um, or thinks that his future at the fr- at the top is, yeah. is over. Go on then, we'll do one, one last word association. Mm. Liz Truss. Kamikaze. <laughs> <laughs> and there we are. That's the end of... Uh, that was great. Uh, you know, Matt Shirley's mallet. Well, I, I feel like I've just ticked something off the bucket list now. <laughs> can, we, can we go and raid... The, we need to go and raid the uh, first aid kit and give you a plaster to put on your chin or something. Do you have to put your or plaster on your elbow, mallet? Yeah, you've got a little plaster and, and stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but next time you get Timmy Mallet on, get him in the studio and let or me get him in the on, studio. I'm on, I'm, he came to my primary school once. Did he? I told him he was utterly, utterly bonkers and it was one of the highlights of my childhood. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.